What does it say about Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and Donald Trump? Is he in there? And the Pope? Where do we fit into all of this? Are the Apache helicopters, are those what the locusts are in Revelation chapter 9? What's going on? And as we consider this book, we think about it more as intellectual stimulation for theologians in their white towers rather than having any real and substantive practical use to the body of Christ. What I would present to you this morning, and I trust insofar as God's spirit allows, that we will see things differently when we leave here. This is one of the most practical books in the Bible. Look at it with me. Revelation 1. We'll be focusing on verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we're grateful for your word and just pray again that you'd be pleased to be at work in our midst this morning. May your spirit open our ears and soften our hearts, implanting your truth deep within. Help me as I seek to help others. Let everything that comes from my mouth be clear and faithful and true for your own glory. Amen. Again, as we consider the book of Revelation, we typically think about very confusing things. And I'm not going to lie to you, there are some confusing things in there. But let's look at the language, even in these first six verses. We're told that this is a revelation Revelation, that is, something that was not previously disclosed is to be revealed, is to be realized. The revelation which God gave him to show. We're meant to be shown something here. And he made it known. Right here in these introductory verses, the language is not one that's giving us some sort of esoteric revelation that is only relegated to a select few of people with superior understanding. This is a revelation that is given to us that can be understood. This book, as does the rest of Scripture, bears the attribute of clarity. God has given us a revelation to be received, to be understood. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We can understand this book. Vern Poitras says this, he asks, can the book of Revelation be understood? Yes, it can. Its message can be summarized in one sentence. God rules history 
and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. If you read it with that main point in mind, you will be able to understand it. You will not necessarily understand every detail, neither do I, but it is not necessary to understand every detail in order to profit spiritually from it. So who can benefit spiritually from this letter? Well, again, our questions are answered in the text. Verse 4 shows us that John wrote this letter to seven churches. So we see that it's a letter. But there's something else that we need to consider about the book of Revelation, and that's the genre that it was written in, the genre. And the genre that we find ourselves reading this morning is what's called apocalyptic literature. It's not a genre that we are accustomed to today, but it was in the air, so to speak, during John's time. It was much more common. And it's important that we understand the genre of any piece of literature that we're approaching as we approach it. There are interpretive implications to what we're reading. For example, we don't read Shakespeare the same way we read the Constitution. We don't read Stephen King the same way that we read Stephen Hawking. We don't read the Psalms the same way that we read Genesis or that we read or consider one of Paul's letter. Again, genre has interpretive implications. One of the attributes of apocalyptic literature is its highly symbolic nature. We might think and consider Revelation as a type of picture book, in fact. John is given all of these bizarre visions, and we're left here kind of trying to figure out the puzzle. (laughs) But it's not a puzzle book, friends. It's a picture book. For example, in Revelation 13, he talks about a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. That's interesting. And we're not meant to take that literally any more than we're meant to take Jesus literally when he says in John 10 that I am the door. Numbers in Revelation are used in a similar way, not to necessarily be taken literally. In Revelation 7, John mentions 144,000. He's not talking literally about a specific number of people, but rather this 144,000 is representative of the fullness of God's covenant people. Similarly, in Revelation 20, although depending on your eschatology views, this is disputed, but the thousand years that John talks about when he refers to the millennium, not necessarily to be taken literally. Numbers are used this way, even outside of apocalyptic literature. You'll recall in Matthew, excuse me, Mark 18, I think it is Matthew 18, when, when Peter approaches Jesus and says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother when he comes to me? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. Now, Jesus didn't calculate, Peter, you're supposed to forgive your brother 490 times, and after that, you don't have to worry about the bloke. That's not what he had in mind. Peter would be carrying around his calculator trying to figure this thing out. It probably would have been an abacus. That's a bit anachronistic, but you get the picture. We don't always take numbers literally, is the point here. To bring us full circle, John is addressing this letter to seven churches. 
Now, he did address this letter to seven real churches that were in Asia at the time, but there were more than seven churches in Asia during this time. So why seven? Well, one thing to understand is that as we consider the numeric importance throughout the book of Revelation, we come to understand that the number seven is a number of completeness. So in John's writing to seven churches, this is meant to represent the complete church, the entire church throughout the world, not just in John's time, but throughout all time. The churches benefit spiritually from this letter. And it's through the churches that his servants, back to verse one, he's showing his servants what must soon take place. It is through the church that they'll benefit from this. The question is, at this point, is that you this morning? Are you one of these servants who can benefit spiritually from this letter? Someone who has yielded your life, your allegiance to Jesus Christ, who has taken hold of him in the gospel promise and embraced him by faith. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 basically functions as the address line on an envelope for John. He extends a salutation to the seven churches to whom he is writing. He extends grace and peace to them. And it's grace and peace, not just from anyone, but grace and peace extended on behalf of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Grace, Matthew Henry notes, as the good will of God towards us and his good work in us and peace the sweet evidence and assurance of that grace. And if you do count yourself among the servants of Jesus Christ this morning, you know something of that peace that comes from that assurance. As Paul says, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. What a warm welcome John gives to the seven churches. And again, this grace comes to us from our triune God. From whom else could it possibly come? John describes the Father. He mentions the Father is him who is and who was and who is to come. This speaks to the eternality, the infinity of God who always was, always is, and always will be. It's the God who inhabits eternity, who is clothed with splendor and majesty, who covers himself with light as with a garment and who stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beam of his chambers on the waters. He rides on the wings of the wind. And he makes the clouds his chariot. This is the God of the ages, the great I am. You see the Holy Spirit here as well. Not as easy to see, but the Holy Spirit, John describes, as the seven spirits who are before his throne. There's that number seven again. Remember, completeness. John isn't talking about seven different spirits or seven angels or anything like that. He means to describe to us the fullness and completeness of the Holy Spirit and his work. And lastly, we see the Son, Jesus Christ. And we see John's threefold description of him, which is where we'll be focusing our attention this morning. First, John describes him as the faithful witness In the Greek, this is rendered the witness that is the faithful one. 
When we talk about someone being a witness, we talk about them bearing testimony of some kind. The word used here is also the word from which we derive our English word, martyr. Jesus, with his perfect life and his perfect death, bore witness. He has gone before us. He has shown us the example of what it means to live faithfully unto God. 1 John 2.6 says, anyone who abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He's given us this model, this example. He's gone before us. His food was to do the will of the Father, and he did it perfectly. Peter says that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ was the faithful witness, even unto death. We are to do likewise. But... This isn't always easy, is it? When things get difficult, and things do get difficult, when we're suffering, when we find ourselves amidst trial and persecution, in danger in various contexts, we're tempted to cut the corners a little bit, aren't we? in the name of expedience, in the name of preserving just a little bit of comfort. Joel Beakey notes that the great temptation for people who are experiencing hostility, opposition, persecution, pain, and possible death is to become so discouraged that they cease to be faithful. And is this not true? Do you not know this from experience that when we are tested, when we are in the furnace and the trial of woes is when our faithfulness is put to the test? Do we respond faithfully? Do we go unto Jesus Christ? Do we respond in a way that he has demonstrated for us obedience to the Father's will? Or do we seek refuge elsewhere? Do we cut the corners? Do we justify any number of of sins. This was a temptation of the churches during John's time, and it's the temptation for us as well. We don't make it two chapters into Revelation before Jesus Christ himself starts to address his churches on these issues. In Revelation 2, 19 and 20, he's speaking to the church in Thyatira, and he commends them. (laughs) He says, I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your servants, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. What a wonderful thing to receive a commendation from the Lord. And yet, hot on the heels of that commendation is that three-letter word that oftentimes means good news in Scripture, but not in this case, and that's the word but. (laughs) But, says Jesus, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my people to commit and practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Their good works did not excuse them from the Savior's rebuke. And so the question is begged, just as it was for them, what things are you tolerating in your life right now? We see such toleration running rampant within the church. 
we see discussions around things that the scripture is clear about. We see ambiguity and discussion when God's word should strike the death blow to any such cogitation. Things such as women preachers, one of the most prominent denominations in the world. This is actually a discussion. Women are supported, going around preaching to other churches. And when someone has the fortitude to render correction that should have been given by people close to them, the church is concerned about his tone <laughs> rather than whether or not what he said was true. Paul is very clear, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I think that that doctrine is more clearly presented to us in the doctrine of the Trinity, which is something that's foundational to our faith. You have other things circulating, CRT, critical race theory, which in many contexts has usurped the gospel. Friends, anytime you have to put an adjective in front of something like justice, you're already in a bad way. There's just justice. (laughs) There's just right and wrong according to the perfect standard of God. That's what it is. What things are you tolerating? John is pointing to Jesus Christ. He's pointing to the faithful witness No matter how hard it gets, you're to follow in his footsteps. So of sorts, it's an exhortation, even a warning, when we consider the consequences of disobedience. However, this also functions as a great encouragement. Our elder brother has gone before us. He has paved the way. He has shown us and given us the grace to be faithful. So don't give in. Don't compromise. He's the faithful witness. He's also the firstborn of the dead. And you're gonna start to see how John's threefold description of Christ here is all working to encourage his readers to faithfulness, to perseverance. These descriptions that were given are related. They build upon one another. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's defeated death. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not even death, (laughs) could hold back Jesus Christ. He's risen. He has been raised from the dead. That's not just something we ought to be talking about one time a year on Easter Sunday. It is foundational for our hope. He's defeated sin and death. Therefore, we will be raised with him. Scripture bears testimony to this. 1 Corinthians 6.14 And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What hope? Because he's gone ahead of us, because he was faithful unto death, because he was the faithful witness, we can have assurance that we will in like manner be raised to an inheritance that is incorruptible that will not perish. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and that is surely comforting. We don't want to be like the men in Psalm seventeen fourteen, whose portion 
is in this world. Hebrews 13, 14 says, we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. Our hope is there. And this necessarily informs how we live in the present. That's why John is pointing to Jesus Christ and the reality of who he is and what he's done. There's a good commentary, just a short paperback book on the book of Ecclesiastes called Living Backwards. And the idea is that Solomon, when he's writing Ecclesiastes, is looking at the end of the matter, right? He's experienced all of these things and then drawn his conclusion. How much better if we could live with that end in view? What we believe about what's coming, what we believe about the end of things, necessarily informs how we're living in the present. And as John is encouraging and exhorting these churches unto faithfulness amidst their suffering and persecution, he says, hey, Christ has already won this thing. So stay faithful, even unto death. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's going to raise you up. Stay faithful. Next, John describes Jesus as the ruler of kings on earth. I got to be honest. I just love that. Uh, That's one of my favorite descriptions of Christ in the whole Bible. The ruler of kings on the earth. KJV says the prince of the kings of the earth. Abraham Kuyper says there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything is in subjection to him. In Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some, not, well, there's some folks over there who aren't under my domain. No, it's all his. He's the ruler of kings on earth. Why is this important to know? Well, friends, it's because at the end of the day, generally speaking, it's rulers, it's leaders, it's governments who wield the institutional power to bring any substantive persecution upon the people of God. There's any number of circumstances and contexts in which we may face lesser persecutions. You know, we're in church, we might walk out and you might have somebody walk by and spit on you or make fun of you or whatever. I guess we could call that persecution, but who cares? What can they do? The government, the kings of the earth, have the power to make things very difficult for the people of God as they try to stay faithful. We see this pattern throughout the book of Revelation. People being unable to buy and sell unless they take the mark of the beast. We see this pattern throughout Scripture, going all the way back to Exodus 1, where Pharaoh tells the midwives to kill the sons of the Hebrews. And we see this countless times in the records of history. To quote Beaky again, who paraphrases John's message as a warning, let all tyrants tremble because Jesus Christ is king, the prince of the kings of the earth, and they shall have to answer to him for their crimes. There is coming a vindication. Christ's judgment will be total and it will be perfect. So take heart. 
But what does this mean practically? It means that, friends, we have a higher authority than Caesar. It means that, contrary to his delusions, Caesar has a higher authority than Caesar. And it means that when we're being coerced into doing something that challenges our allegiance to Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, we have to resist. We have to avoid compromise at all costs. It may make things difficult, but remember, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, faithful even unto death. During ancient times in the Roman Empire, the citizens of Rome were required to pinch incense at a statue of Caesar in order to demonstrate their allegiance to him. Now to the Romans, this was probably akin to us saying the Pledge of Allegiance. But for Christians, this was idolatry. Their confession was not the confession of the day which Caesar is Lord. Their confessions was Jesus is Lord. And they were persecuted for this because it was much more than just something they threw on a bumper sticker. And the rulers then understand, as they probably understand today, that there are implications to saying that Jesus is Lord. And the implication there is that if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And he ain't. Acts 17 says, verses 6 through 8, And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There is another king, Jesus. And we serve him. To render absolute allegiance and confess absolute authority to anyone or anything other than God is idolatry. All authority in the temporal context, that is all authority that is not God's authority, is limited, it's derived, it's not absolute, and it's not autonomous. It means that in Mark 12, when Jesus said to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he meant only render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We like to stop and just say, yeah, give Caesar what's his. But the corollary there is don't give him what doesn't belong to him. Again, his power and his authority and his reach, they're real, even ordained, but they are limited. It means that Caesar has no business taking upon himself authority that belongs to God or the family or the church. It means that Caesar doesn't have the authority to make health decisions for you or your family. And no, I'm not talking about abortion. Caesar doesn't have the authority to supersede the law of God regardless of what the Supreme Court says. Again, they answer to the ruler of kings on earth. And yet, 
That's exactly what we see happening when we look at the COVID-19 situation, isn't it? Under the pretense of biblical fidelity, churches all over the country told their people that if they wanted to come into the house of God, they had to cover their face. Why? Because Caesar said so. Indeed, this just in, Philippians 4.13 has been relegated to second place in the most out-of-context verses in the Bible. Romans 13 is now in the lead. This passage was butchered, again, under the pretense of biblical fidelity. Caesar has no authority to tell you to mask up when you come to worship God. This isn't the same thing as the police forcing everyone out of here because they received a bomb threat on the place, in which case we surely listen to them. We are Christians that are frequently persecuted after all. It could happen. But after the third or fourth time of being forced out of here under a false alarm, the data indicating that something just ain't right here, we'd start to question things. I use the term church broadly, of course, as there are many churches who understood the limits of their authority despite what their personal convictions might have been. The church you're sitting in is one of them. I thank God for these men. And the question's begged, when did the church of Jesus Christ begin to be Caesar's enforcers and henchmen? The pastors that demanded this of their people had as much authority to do what they did as Caesar did. None. And let me explain why. Because in so doing, these churches bound the consciences of their people to an extra-biblical standard. And in so doing, barred those people from the means of grace, the very means of grace with which they have been entrusted to administer to them. They don't have that authority. The Westminster Confession rightly states that God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are, in anything, contrary to his word. If you make a personal choice to follow along with all of these things, if you wear a mask, if you get your vaccine, we could make a long list. That's your prerogative, truly. It's incumbent upon all of us to examine the data we're given and do what is best for ourselves and our families. I personally question it. I believe we're being lied to in many ways. And if you want to go further down that rabbit hole, Alice, I would love to talk with you later. But understand this, it is another thing entirely to have these things forced upon us and more egregious yet to have such things forced upon us by the church under the pretense of following the Bible. These are tough things to say, but I'm with Paul, 2 Corinthians 13.8. He said, I can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. If I change my message, if I alter or cut the corners of what I believe to be the implications of the word of God because I'm concerned about how it might make you feel and how you might receive me, then I've got no business standing here. And neither does anyone else who falls into that trap. 
Do you understand, Christian, that in the first century when Christians declared Jesus is Lord, again, it had real implications. John Calvin said that Christ hath no disciples where he is not counted the only master. We're not going to pitch our incense here or there or anywhere. There is another king, Jesus, and we serve him. In the final installment of the greatest movie series ever made, fittingly called The Return of the King, there is a scene where Gandalf and Peregrine Took are standing in the city of Minas Tirith, it all but overrun by the orc hordes of Mordor. The city's fall, their subsequent deaths, imminent, seemingly inevitable. Pippin looks up at Gandalf and he says, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf turns his head sharply as though to signal the error in such a sentiment and yet he answers gently. End, he says. No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path but one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. White shores and beyond. A far green country into a swift sunrise. It's beautiful language. And to me, It sounds a lot like revelation. It sounds a lot like life. We're surrounded by the doom and the gloom and the forces of evil that would seek to envelop us, to cast us into despair and discouragement and defeat. But that's gonna be peeled back one day. Our king will return. He will descend from heaven on a white horse, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on their own white horses. And he will take the sword of his mouth and he will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And his enemies will be defeated, vanquished, conquered once and for all. The victory that has already been won will be fully realized by us. And we will reign with him forever. Paul shares these sentiments in Romans 8, that wonderful chapter when he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is so certain, it's already happened. 
This is rich and heavy theology, and I hope you're beginning to see that it's practical theology, which all theology is, by the way, if you're understanding it properly. These truths are what will help you. They're the means whereby you will persevere unto salvation. They're the means whereby you'll make it to the end of this thing. Just knowing them, looking to them, living by them, taking them to heart, it's enough to strengthen you. Look to Christ. He's all you need. How can we be sure of the practicality? Let's go back to the beginning of our passage. We skipped over some things there. John says that the one who reads aloud these words is blessed, as are the ones who hear and take to heart, who keep what is written. They're blessed. How do you know that, John? How do you know they're blessed? How do you know this works? Is this, is this some sort of magic formula? I mean, you are the apostle. Maybe you have something that we don't. The book of Revelation, this letter was meant to encourage and exhort Christians who were suffering and being per- persecuted and thus tempted to waver and compromise. These things were already happening. They've always been happening. Revelation presents to us a, a cycle of sorts wherein this is the pattern that's been established throughout all of history. It's always been happening. And John says soon. He says the time is near. To be sure, he was addressing the specific plight of the churches to which he wrote, but John's not so much telling us to look at our calendar as he is highlighting the character of the time. And the character of the time is seize it. For the end has already been ushered in since the ascension of Christ. We are living in the last days. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of salvation. So live faithfully. Do so now, even amidst your persecution. That's, that's fantastic, John, but how do you know? Look at verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the what? The tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. John knew Because he's the guy that was getting these visions. He was in exile. He was an old man by this time, the last living of the apostles, and he was sentenced, exiled, to the island of Patmos, which was basically just a rock, five miles by ten miles, miserable sort of existence. He was sentenced and exiled there by the emperor Domitian, and John says, hey, this stuff that I'm getting, it's blessed me. I've made it. I've fulfilled the ministry that God has entrusted to me. So likewise, be encouraged. Live faithfully. Persevere and do so now. For the time is near. John's consideration of this is of such magnitude that it leads him to praise. It leads him to doxology. Look at the rest of our passage. To him who loves us. To him who loves us. Notice this isn't past tense. This isn't something that Jesus did a while back and may or may not forget about y'all. He loves us. He will always love us. And not just that, but he's freed us 
from our sins by his blood. And notice, John doesn't just say that he's cleansed us, but he's freed us. We're no longer slaves to that which once held us captive. In fact, we've been released. We've been commissioned. We've been ordained to a kingdom to be priests to God the Father forever. Called out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. One Puritan writes, a true Christian has his enemies under his feet even while he is in the fight. He is a soldier as soon as he is a saint and he is a conqueror as soon as he is a soldier. His very taking up arms ensures his victory. Friends, no one ever lost by serving God. So keep going. Be faithful, even unto death. We have a faithful witness to look to. We have the firstborn of the dead who will make us alive together with him, who has already done that through our salvation and who is the ruler of any minuscule tyrant that thinks he's bigger than our God. Jesus says in Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Amen. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for our elder brother and his sacrifice on our behalf. We praise him even now as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, and we praise you and thank you for freeing us from our sins, for loving us, and for calling us unto yourself. May we leave here invigorated, encouraged, girding up the loins of our minds for battle, and may anyone who doesn't know you recognize their immediate need to be welcomed into this fold, lest they perish in the way. Amen.